we are called to be and are becoming together this summer misfits. I want to welcome you again today to the sixth installment of our series, Misfits, where all throughout this collection of sermons, and if you're joining us at Church Online or watching this in somewhat real time, we are this summer walking through the New Testament book called 1 Peter. And we've been walking through it verse by verse, section by section, thought by thought, discovering how to become what Peter is imploring those he's writing to to become, because that's what's in the heart of God, that we would be misfits. We would be people who don't fit into the ways and the common customs of the people around us because we are those who live different. We are those who are different because we are, somebody in the chat just say, I am a misfit. Yes, you are. And misfits, we've been discovering, choose to follow Jesus like the scriptures say. They don't just follow him in what's common to do or maybe what's culturally understood or culturally accepted or even culturally sort of thought of as this is all that really matters. Misfits say, show me what the scripture says. Help me see what Jesus called us to do. And that's what I want to do. Today I want to unpack and explore a significant but often underlooked reality for us as misfits. Because the truth is this. Most people who call themselves Christians cannot defend their faith. They call themselves Christians, thereby they have some faith that they hold to. Maybe that's what's true of you. You call yourself a Christian. You say, I'm a person of faith. But the reality is, and maybe my pushback would be, can you defend your faith? You know, people are funny when they uh, have convictions that they don't really know why they're convicted of such things. They can't conversate about those subject matters. They can only escalate the volume. Maybe you've noticed this in conversation with people at some point. Maybe you've seen this online in some capacity, wherever you choose to be online at, whether you find it in a Facebook feed or, or in a thread or on Twitter or wherever you choose to be. You find people talking about something and people will disagree about things and you will find very quickly those who do not understand what it is they're talking about because those who don't understand what they're talking about seem to get louder and louder and louder. They'll go all caps on you. When somebody says something contrary to what they, uh, maybe you think, or somebody says something contrary to what it is you propagate or presume to be true. But would you believe me today if I told you that you being able to defend your faith is paramount for you as a misfit? That one of the most important realities for you as a misfit, you in becoming this person that, that, that Jesus wants you to become, you becoming this person who is in this world but not of this world, you becoming this person who doesn't fit into the normal understandings and normal flow of things in and around us, the part of what's paramount in this for you is that you are able to defend your faith. You see, in the portion of 1 Peter that we are going to digest today, this is, to me, the most significant statement that Peter makes. Now, there are about a half a dozen things I could camp on and spend an hour unpacking and digesting for you. And some of these I, I will touch on uh, as we explain this most significant reality. But even though we're going to read eight or nine verses today and sort of conclude chapter three together, I... Uh, I must confess that I'm giving the majority of my attention to one verse or maybe a verse and a half, depending upon how you see it. And it's a thought that is significant that many people skip over the implications of it and skip over the call to it. But it's a call to us as a misfit. And if you are going to be the misfit that God wants you to be, if you're going to be the person who can, who can stand strong no matter what is going on around you, who can love him even though people around you don't love him, who can have a faith that can weather the storm even though the storm may be beating you down, then it is paramount for you to be someone that has a faith that's not just something that you have, but something that you know something you can defend, something that you can 
withstand opposition towards. First Peter chapter three, we're going to start at verse 13 and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter through verse 22. Uh, but again, give my attention today to one verse in particular. Here's the way Peter records this. He says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Man, what a thought. Even if you're doing the right thing and you suffer for it, you're blessed. That's a different definition of blessed than most people see. Most people think they're blessed when they got more money this month than they had last month. Or they think they're blessed when they're healthier this year than they were last year. Or they're, they're blessed when something comes out of nowhere and it's what they always have wanted. They think they're blessed when everything is good. They think they're blessed. But Peter says, listen, even if you're doing the right thing and you are persecuted for doing the right thing, baby, call yourself blessed. He says, don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened. It's an interesting thought as well. He's, remember, writing to people in a place at a time, and maybe, just maybe, there were threats towards them and their faith. There were. Maybe there was opposition being pushed at them because of what it is they said they believe, because they said, I am following Jesus. He says, he says don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But, and this is where we're going to key in on today, and uh, then we're going to conclude the reading of this. He says, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. He goes on to say, keeping a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That's what he said before. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Again, I want to spend our time today on a verse that's often skipped over, on an implication that's often missed because of the weight wherewith it carries. It's verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3, where again, as a reminder, Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason." For the hope that you have. When you do this, do this with gentleness and respect. May I ask you a very personal question as we begin today? Why do you have hope in Jesus? You don't have to put this in the chat. You don't have to type this. You don't even have to talk to this. I want you to process in your own mind and your own heart right now. Why do you have hope in Jesus? Because if you were being honest, some of you would say you have hope in Jesus because you were raised in church. That's why. This is just what you were brought up in. You were brought up in the family of faith. You, uh, you went to every vacation, Bible school, your parents could find for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, uh, you went to summer camp and you, and you just, you brought up in this. Okay, but um, you do realize that doesn't save you. That I don't care how many sermons you have screened. I don't care how many times you have sat in a seat in a service on a Sunday that your attendance in a church service, your participation in a church doesn't save you. It doesn't secure your seats in heaven. Why do you have hope in Jesus? Because this is what you were brought up in? Or maybe, maybe you would say it's because you've always been a Christian. People love to say that. Oh, I've always been a Christian. Can I tell you something? No, you haven't. Not, not, not if you're actually a Christian, <laughs> because if you're actually a Christian, you would believe the claims of Christ. You would trust the truth of Scripture, which would tell us that all have sinned, including you, Miss. I've always been a Christian. Uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You would recognize that the wages of sin is death, 
But God gave a, gave a gift that is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And then you will be saved. You haven't always been a Christian. But some people use that as their thought to explain why they have hope in Jesus. I've always been a Christian. No, 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 you haven't. Why do you have hope in Jesus? Because you come from a good family? I don't even know what that means. What's good mean? And is that something about faith? Or is that something about relationship? Or is that something about economics and opportunity? What does that even mean? The interesting thing is those three answers uh, are probably the most prevalent and pervading answers for most people as to why they have hope in Jesus. I was raised in church. That's why, but you know, you know, I used to always believe in God, man. I, my grandmama was a praying woman. Oh, okay. But what about the hope that you have? Why do you have hope in Jesus? See, the reality is, is a lot of us, when people start to push at our hope, we, we have to get loud because we don't know what to say. We have to get loud because we don't know what else to communicate. Because quite honestly, we don't know why we have faith. In Jesus, If somebody pressed us to give an answer for the reason of the hope that we have, we, we don't know what to say. Today I want to help you to build some confidence in your faith. Today I want to help you to, 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 to maybe push you forward, to help you see, but also to help direct you in a way so that confidence could be built about your faith. You see, if you're taking notes today, you can take notes uh, through the current series button on our, on our website. You can take notes by writing them down. However works for you works for me. But I want you to be confident enough in your faith to have answers for your faith. You should be confident enough in your faith. Come on, baby, you're a misfit. You're not like those who just say they have faith, who just walk around acting like they have faith. But you are confident enough in your faith to have answers for the faith that you have. Now, don't get it twisted and think that means that you have answers for everything. But it should mean that you're not afraid to talk. I can't tell you how many people in my life have told me that they are scared to have conversations about faith, maybe with their children, scared to have conversations about faith, maybe with their spouse, scared to have conversations about faith, maybe with their friends, their coworkers, their boss, their neighbors, because they're afraid they might get asked a question that they don't have the answer to. Be confident enough in your faith to have answers for your faith. But that does not mean that you have to have all the answers to all of everyone's questions for your faith, initially. See, several years ago, I had a, a guy who's a friend of mine who started doubting the faith that he was handed in a very serious way. He started doubting it and started doing some exploration on his own, started Googling stuff, you know. Sometimes just Googling stuff that you don't know very much about, but it's significant things can lead you in the wrong way. I don't know if anybody's ever been sick and you started Googling your symptoms. And the next thing you know, you check yourself into a hospital, but you ain't got nothing more than the sniffles, you know, because you started Googling your symptoms. And the next thing you know, you think you got a rash and you got malaria and your legs going to fall off. And <laughs> be careful. The same thing can happen with faith. And this, this guy was, um, was handed a faith. And, and he started to have a lot of questions about it. And he started going to some of the people that were closest to him and asking them questions, and they could not give them reasons for the hope that they had. And so he reached out to me and just said, man, I got a lot of questions about faith. And, and him and I were friends, and he, he's like, man, do you think that we might be able to get together sometimes and I just ask you some questions? Because I'm really doubting all this stuff. And I said, man, yeah, I'd love to. And so for a little while, we would get together at restaurants, uh, meet up at a night and he'd bring his questions and we'd eat. Um, well, we wouldn't eat much. Our food would sit there and be cold staring at us. But we would, we would talk and he would bring questions. A lot of the questions that he had were, uh, were valid questions. They were questions that I've wrestled with and explored and studied and I could give quick and definitive and scriptural answers to. And that helped him. But then there were some questions that he had that quite honestly he... Uh, he had fallen into some stuff and sort of uh, elevated some, some thinking and some things to where he had, he had some questions that, um, that I wasn't really all that prepared for, to be honest. 
he had some questions about some stuff and he would, uh, he would ask it. I wouldn't know the answer to because it was uh, maybe uh, something of a, of a different stream of faith than, than I hold or a different persuasion or a different elevation of certain things. And, and I didn't know the answers. And I can remember a few times sitting there at, at, at dinner with him late at night because let me tell you, in this season, we closed down more than a few restaurants where they was like, y'all ain't got to go home. But y'all, anyway, but I would tell him, listen, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I have some thoughts, but I don't, I don't know it well enough to, um, to share with you with the, the veracity and the understanding that I do some of these other things. So let me write this down, and I type them in my phone. And I say, the next time we get together, I'm going to have the best answer I have for you. But I just don't know offhand. And Three, four weeks later, we get together for dinner again, have another conversation. I bring him an answer. And I, after a while, his faith and some of these questions, some of these doubts um, went away. And, and his faith became stronger. And his faith became more confident and more secure. And I remember him telling me before he moved away, he said, you know, what helped me the most wasn't just the answers that you could give me, but the willingness you had to communicate that you didn't know everything but you go find it out. He said, it spoke to me a confidence that you had in what you believe where you weren't scared of any of my questions. See, that's the problem with some of us when it comes to our friends and our family members, people that we work with that don't have the same kind of faith. We're scared of their questions. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone, to everyone who would ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Don't be afraid of what they might ask. But be ready to have your faith tested. See, I learned a long time ago, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. But the reason that many people don't want their faith tested, they don't want their faith challenged, is because they don't comprehend it. But you cannot communicate what you don't comprehend. There's a Greek word used here in Peter's writing when he, when he communicates to us and to his initial readers to always be prepared to give an answer. The, the, the Greek word there is apologia, an apology. And that's not a, I'm sorry for what I did, not that kind of apology, but apology that would lead into the line of thinking that is often called apologetics. In other words, being able to give an intellectual and comprehensive defense for what it is you believe. You should be able to defend your faith. That's what Peter gets at. But when you defend your faith, please understand, defending your faith requires respect, not rebuttals. Too many people that think about defending their faith are simply looking for rebuttals. They're simply looking for tweetable phrases that they can fire back at somebody who says something that disagrees with them. Peter did not say, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with a tweetable rebuttal. Not what he said. He didn't say to do this with a zinger that they won't be able to come back. That's not what he said. He said, do this with gentleness and respect. Most people think defending the faith is about giving these quick hits that can't be disputed. I took, when I was in seminary, two classes on this subject matter, apologetics. And the interesting thing is, even though both courses were built out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, what we're studying today. The logic behind most of it was put to cut down every argument in the quickest, shortest way possible. And in some ways, I feel like it missed the heart of what Peter is even saying. Because what if your airtight argument has some holes in it? Or what if your rebuttal is right, but when it's used and how it's used is disrespectful? Is it right then? Some of the most hateful things you will hear, some of the most discouraging and disparaging things people will share and send, uh, particularly online where they can hide behind their avatar, may be correct, but they're not done with gentleness and respect. Or sometimes they think they're so solid and so indefensible. The problem is they've only heard that communicated from those echo chambers that just say, yeah, you better tell them. 
and never a contrary thought brought to it. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, for the faith that you have. But when you do this, do this with gentleness and respect. You know, our faith as misfits needs some things. To undergird it, to strengthen it, to hold it in difficult seasons. Because as misfits, we live in a difficult time. We live in a time where people are becoming more and more intolerant towards God and the things of God. Where people are becoming less and less apt to have uh, been handed something, some, some faith that is foundational. And so today what I would like to do is I would like to give you four different foundations that your faith needs. I want to give you a few things that if you're going to always be prepared to give an answer, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, you need these in your life. Your faith needs these. And they may seem a little different to you because no, I am not going to give you some little quips for you to memorize, to fire back when somebody brings up a topic. That's not what I want to give you. I want to give you foundations that your faith needs. Some practice, some habit, some truth that you need on the inside of you rooted out of what we see Peter even do here in the verses around 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. So if you're taking notes today, would you please write this down? Because your faith, the first thing it needs, if it's going to be founded to always be ready to give an answer to anyone that might ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have, your faith needs examination. The first thing your faith needs in whatever level it's on, whatever it looks like on today, your faith needs examination. But too many people treat their faith like their bank balance that you're disappointed in. You just don't look. I don't know if your bank account's ever been in a spot where you were so discouraged by it, you didn't want to look at it. Can I get an amen in the chat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I just don't even want to look at it. I know it ain't got nothing but about $4.11. So it may even just be in the negative. It may just be living in the negative. I just, I just, I just can't. I don't want to look. There's some people that do that with their faith. They have it, they hold it, they protect it. Can't say nothing about my faith, but you never examine what it is you actually believe. See, some folk actually think some stuff connected to their faith because they heard it often. The problem is you heard it often and you think it's true, but it's not true at all. Because some of you believe that God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. No, he doesn't. Not always, because people like to plop that on any and every situation that you might be going through that's difficult. You're going through a difficult season. You got some challenges in your life. You got some difficulties you're having to navigate. And people love to say, trying to be well-meaning people of faith, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. But can I tell you what God also does? Sometimes God allows you to deal with the consequences of your dumb decisions. Sometimes God allows you to deal with the consequences of the, of the choices that you have made that were not good. And the battle that you're fighting right now, baby, you walked up into it and picked the fight. Y'all don't want to hear this. But the problem is, when we're told that God gives his strongest battles, his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers, we think things about ourselves that may or may not be true. We think things about God that may or may not be true. Or, People love to say, God won't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> Bull crap. God won't give you more than you can handle. That just ain't true. Only people that believe that are people that ain't ever read the Bible. Only people that believe that are people that ain't ever lived life. Because God will give you more than you can handle. Now, he'll never give you more than you can handle with his help because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So even if I, like Paul, find myself in prison, but I got a calling on my life to do things, I can do all things. I can have joy while I'm in prison. I can be confident in my faith even while I'm in a terrible situation. I can do all things through Christ. But God will give you more than you can handle. He just won't give you more than you can handle with his help. See, maybe the faith that you were handed was incomplete. Maybe some of the ideas about following God that you were handed that have been propagated to you were maybe incorrect even in an area. And maybe even that 
incorrect idea in an area is making all of faith difficult for you. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to, how many people I interact with who tell me why all of their faith is difficult for them to grasp simply because of one area, one idea, one reality, one thing they were told to be true that just wasn't true. Friend, you have to be willing to examine the faith you're handed because we are all handed something. Even those of you listening and watching today who maybe the faith that you were handed wasn't a faith at all. Some of you are listening to this. Maybe you're watching it at church online. Maybe somebody sent this to you and you're watching it today. You found us on YouTube. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And you weren't handed a faith at all. You were brought up in an environment without faith in God. Can I just ask you if you're someone who doesn't believe God, doesn't believe in the things of God? Maybe because what you were handed is that, 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 that God is, is for people who are weak-minded, that people who need religion, people who want religion, are just people who won't deal with the realities of life that are in front of them. Can I just ask you how whatever it is you were handed, even if it's not a faith, how's that working for you? Like for real. Is every question answered? Is, uh, are all your doubts turned to assurance? Are you confident because of the lack of faith that you have? Because we were all handed something. In fact, some of you may have been brought up in a different religion. Have you ever examined that religion? Maybe you were brought up in, uh, as a Buddhist. You were brought up as a Hindu. You were brought up even as a Muslim. I don't know. Have you ever examined what it was you were handed or do you simply just accept what it is you were handed? A couple weeks ago, I read this book that I have, I've had in my bag for probably, uh, I don't know, nine months probably at least. Um, it was given to me by, by, by a guy I know who is a very devout Muslim. And he handed it to me one day, and uh, he said, I want to give this to you, Michael. I said, great. He said, he said, and if you read it, you will become a Muslim. I said, all right, my man, thank you. And uh, I told my wife about this, and I kept it in my bag because I was planning to, like, have some time. But it's, it's been busy in my little world, and, and I hadn't had a chance to get to it. I've been wanting to it. I've been joking with my wife. Be like, I'll let you know that day that I read a book because apparently when I read a book, I'm going to become a Muslim. Like, I have no choice. And um, the other night, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a, uh, a rare but very grateful like night at home where we didn't have any place we had to be. We were at home relatively early, and uh, my wife was doing something. I think she was doing her, her grad school work. My son was, uh, was doing whatever he do, and it was just me, and there wasn't no basketball on. So I was like, you know what? I'm about to read this Become a Muslim book. And so I sat in the chair in our living room, and uh, I read the whole thing. And as I read it, I had question upon question upon question. Because there were statements made in that book about the Muslim faith, about Islam, that um, were said in such an absolute way, but yet I have very strong questions and objections too. And as I was reading it, you'll be glad to know, I didn't become a Muslim on the back end. But... Um, it made me think about this reality that so many people are handed a faith, even probably my friend who handed me this book, have been handed a faith, but it's like you're not allowed to question it. You're not allowed to examine it. Some of you were even handed a faith in Jesus, like a, like a real faith in Jesus. But maybe what you were handed um, was jaded in one way. Or maybe what you were handed overemphasized something that shouldn't have been emphasized in that way. Have you ever examined the faith that you have? Because your faith, what it needs is examination. Your faith needs to be able to be broken apart and dissected. Because oftentimes people will make absolute statements on things that were not meant to be absolute. It happens right here with some of the writing from 1 Peter chapter 3. 
We, we, we read towards the end of, of these verses here, uh, verse 21 to be specific, uh, as he gets done talking about Noah and the ark and the waters and all these things. And he says, likewise, like in the same way, and he makes this statement that people have done crazy things with. He says, baptism now saves you. Did you see that? There are sections of faith, sections of what would be considered Christianity that take that literally. And Peter didn't mean it literally. They believe that baptism is what saves you. To say it another way, they believe that you are not saved. You are not going to heaven until you are baptized in water. Not before it, but the moment you're baptized, that's when you're saved. Problem is, that goes against everything else taught in the New Testament about salvation. Like, it's by grace that we're saved through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, like maybe baptism, so that no person can boast about it. Or how Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through, but through me. It also contradicts the lived, recorded experience that Peter went through. The book of Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision where he is called by, the, uh, by God and sent by the Holy Spirit to a man named Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a Gentile. Cornelius was someone who, at that time, the Jews did not believe necessarily they could be saved. But the Holy Spirit says, go to Cornelius' house, and Peter goes to Cornelius' house. In Acts chapter 10, Luke makes this interesting uh, statement. He says, he says that Peter noticed that they were filled with the Holy Spirit just like he was. Now, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit unless you're saved. Right? <laughs> like, there's order to this. And you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit unless you're saved. But... The book of Acts records that it's after that moment that Peter then baptizes them. So they're saved because they're filled with the Holy Spirit when Peter meets them. But these saved people who are filled with the Holy Spirit then get baptized. They didn't say they got saved then when they got baptized. They were already saved because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, you see. But Peter makes this statement. Baptism now saves you. And Peter's writing is just as much the New Testament as anything I've shared with you. So what's going on here? Well, Peter is explaining that it's like this. He's using the story of Noah and the ark as, a, uh, as an illustration. And he talks about how the ark saved Noah and his family. But when he says the ark saved Noah and his family, he doesn't really mean the ark. Because the ark didn't save him. God saved him. God told Noah what to build and how to build it. God gave him the instructions. God gave him the plan. God supplied the materials. God brought the workers. God sent the animals. God shut the door. God watched out for them for 40 days and 40 nights. God told them when the land was dry. God sent them out from there. It was God who protected them. You can call it the ark if you want to, but it wasn't the ark. It was God. And in the same way, baptism... <laughs> is this picture of salvation, just like the ark was a picture of salvation. And it's not the water that saves you, because there ain't nothing special or magical about the water. It's a public declaration of a faith that you already have. But it's showing that God has cleansed you, and God has saved you, and God has transformed you. But there are people who will believe and, and wrestle with the fact that it's baptism that saved you. And the problem is they haven't ever examined their faith. You've got to learn to be somebody who questions, who studies, Who's willing to discuss? The scripture says to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but correctly handles the word of truth. Can I tell you something you won't hear a lot from a whole lot of preachers? It's okay to doubt your faith. Just stay engaged in your faith. Don't doubt in order to drop out. Doubt to discover. And discover so you can discuss. Because as misfits, we're working to always be prepared to give an answer. 
to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that we have. But we're going to do this with gentleness and respect, which means that our faith needs examination. But you know what else our faith needs? Your faith needs evidence. It doesn't just need to be parsed through. It needs some evidence that I can hold to, some evidence that is concrete, some evidence, maybe this empirical, that I can look back and point to and hold to. You need something beyond a story that you tell or a feeling that you get when somebody sings the song that you love for your faith to stand upon. I've learned that in church circles, people who've been in church for a while, that's sometimes why they get so particular about stylistic things. It's not because they're grumpy and crotchety. It's because there's something about that way or that style or that song or that place that uh, gives them a feeling. The problem is their faith is too built on that feeling when it really needs evidence. So you need to become somebody who gathers evidence to solidify your faith. Who, who, who your faith makes sense. See, my faith makes sense because I look at the reliability of the scriptures, particularly the New Testament. I don't know if you know this, but there is no more verified ancient piece of literature than the New Testament. There's not. A piece of ancient literature that's between 1,500 and 2,500 years old. There is no more accurate piece of literature than the New Testament. Just for literary sake, there are things that you think you know about history that you believe, <laughs> and there's like no recorded evidence other than hearsay. But yet there are manuscripts and transcriptions and lectionaries, not in the tens, not in the hundreds, but in the tens of thousands giving evidence, giving comparing and contrast to the writing and the work that is the New Testament. Evidence. So when people want to push back and say that Jesus was a farce or these stories were made up, baby, there's, there's nothing in ancient history more well-documented than the claims of the New Testament. So my faith has evidence. My faith has evidence that is the church, the capital C church. Because Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after his resurrection. This is what Paul tells us in his writing to the Corinthian church. And if he appeared to more than 500 people, but yet there were only 120 in the upper room, that means that roughly only 20% of those who saw resurrected Jesus were literally the incubator as the group of people who turned the world upside down. And not just in their lifetime, but for the entirety of human history going forward, that you and I are gathered today, you're watching a sermon online, you're listening to this podcast, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gatherings of people all over our country and all around the world. There are multiplied millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions, billions even, of Jesus followers. Because 20% of the people who saw resurrected Jesus said, we're going to do what he said, and we're going to wait in the upper room until the Holy Spirit comes. And now 2,000 years later, we're still following. That's a miracle. If you never see a blind eye open in your life, if you've seen the church, you've seen a miracle. If you never see cancer disappear out of somebody's body, but you see people gathered, worshiping Jesus, loving their neighbor as themselves, can I tell you, you've seen a miracle. Because there is no way that this ragtag group of followers should turn the world upside down unless it's evidence that what Jesus said, who Jesus was, it's true. But you don't even have to look at those kind of things. You can solidify your faith through the clarity that comes from the wonder of science. Science is discovering and moving at a fascinating 
rate. The amount of things that are discovered on a daily, weekly basis is extraordinary. And if the church has missed the boat in anything, it has been this um, rejection of science in some capacities. I remember talking to these people uh, a couple of years ago who uh, uh, they asked me uh, how old I thought the earth was. And I answered their question with a question or with really more a statement of reality. I said, well, I said, there are two leading groups of thought, both of which come back to faith in Jesus, all in how you read the book of Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. But uh, some people believe the earth is 6,000 years old and that's all it can be. While others believe in what is called an old earth because they believe in uh, what is a gap in the writing in the book of Genesis chapter one and that maybe the earth is, you know, millions or billions of years old in our solar systems because like the scriptures say, with God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So to think that creation had happened in 24 hour increments of time is to put a constraint on God that God never put on himself because even when Peter says that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, he doesn't mean 1,000 years exactly. What he means is a thousand is this incalculable uh, amount of anything in Hebrew culture. And so I was like, I know many people of faith who believe the earth is 6,000 years old and that's all that they can wrap their mind around and that's cute. And then I, and I said, I know people who uh, lean into what science sort of discovers and also are very devout Christians and believe that the Bible is, is, is literal and believe in the book of Genesis and that God created everything. And these people didn't like my answer. I've never seen them again in life. <laughs> because I could tell from them they had been handed something that says, well, the earth has to be 6,000 years old because I added up all the ages of all the people in the Bible. And then if I add seven days to it, it gets me right about 6,000 years. And um, the problem is you're dismissing everything that science finds altogether. And you know what science finds every day as more and more and more is discovered as the nuance and the intricacy and how things work together actually works? Daily, they're discovering all that is life all that is our world, all that is our solar system, all that is the universe, all that is the, the people that you see, the plants that you enjoy, the air that you breathe, there's no way this could be an accident. That there's intelligence behind the design and there's no clearer articulation, more, more plausibly believable explanation for how all of this came to be than God made it happen. Your faith needs evidence. And when your faith gets evidence, what happens is it starts to build assurance. That's what Peter is trying to do here, even in his writing. He recounts what Jesus did upon the cross for them to give them evidence of their salvation, to give them evidence that what Jesus was doing was once and for all, because there were thoughts and heresies circulating around. And Peter says, let me give you evidence again. He's trying to give evidence to his readers by summarizing what happens on the cross. And here's what he said. He said that he, meaning Jesus, suffered for our sin, not his own. And this happened once and it happened for good. That he took our place, righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That there was physical death, but not permanent death. Why did he share this? To give them evidence as a witness that they needed to fight the lies that were circulating. Can I tell you, your faith needs evidence like that. Because you won't always feel it but you can always know it. You won't always feel God close to you, but you can know that he's close to you. You won't always feel like he's in control, but you can know that he's in control. On the days when life feels like more, more trial than it does triumph, you can know that he's in control. When you are overwhelmed by all that's going on around you, when you're overtaken by the opposition against you, if your faith has some evidence, you can push back to what's pushing against you. But if your faith is all fairy tales and feelings, if you need the right song at the right decibel level, sung by the right person to get you in the mood for God, you won't always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Your faith needs evidence. Your faith needs examination. But your faith also, please write this down, 
Your faith needs experience. Your faith needs some experience along the way. See, Peter talks about two things at the end here. The resurrection and the ascension. And he does so after talking about the cross, but he talked about the cross to give them evidence. He talked about the resurrection and the ascension to remind them of his experience. Because I need to tell you that the same Peter who wrote 1 Peter was the same Peter who was there at the resurrection. Who was there when Jesus ascended. This is the same Peter who ran to the tomb when the women came and announced that he was not there in that tomb anymore, but he is risen. Peter ran to the tomb. It was Peter who was in the room when Jesus appeared and showed Thomas the, the nail scars in his hand and the wound in his side. It was Peter who was there at the fish fry with Jesus when, when he was restored because of his denying of Jesus. It was Peter who was there when Jesus said, said, said I'm about to go, but I'm coming back. Just like I told you, and he ascended into heaven. Peter wasn't talking about something that he had heard somewhere. He wasn't disseminating something he had discovered in his study. He was talking about what he saw. He was talking about what he experienced. And so he went to the upper room and did what Jesus said and waited until the Holy Spirit came and filled them. And he did it because the one who denied him got an experience that he could not deny. Can I tell you something? You can't talk me out of what I've seen God do. You may not agree with my logic. You may not agree with my study. You may not understand my understanding. Okay. You can't talk me out of what I've seen God do. Because I was there when the doctors told me that my son, who was one day old, was going to need a heart transplant or he would die. See, my son was born. And about 24 hours after he was born, he started turning blue in the nursery at the hospital where my wife had had him. And so they rushed him to the NICU and they told us, we can't help you here. And so they sent us to the leading children's hospital in the southern United States at the time. Thankfully, we were in Dallas, Texas, so we were rushed by ambulance to Children's Medical Center. And they rushed our son into the, cardi the pediatric cardiac ICU in the hospital. Seven rooms in this massive hospital. There's only seven of them. The sickest of the sick kids are there. And we hadn't been there an hour. And doctors had looked and assessed and told us what I told you. Two rooms over from my son was another boy, born three weeks to the day before my son. And he was there, struggling, given the same diagnosis as my son. I watched this little boy have a heart transplant. His name is Keegan. And I watched him and his parents fight through it all. We stayed friends with them because of our similar diagnosis. And when you live at the hospital for weeks and months on end, you, you make friends with the people who are there a lot. I watched up close and then even from afar via social media, this, uh, this young boy has spent more than half of his life in the hospital. Though his heart transplant took, the follow-up procedures, the sickness, the the frailty and fragility that is his life has been an ever-present reality before him. And they said the same thing to my son. He had multiple open-heart surgeries. We lived in the hospital for seven weeks. It was touch and go. He was on a machine called ECMO for the better part of three weeks, which literally kept him alive while they figured out what the heck was going on and how they were going to do what they were going to do. But they never did a heart transplant. He's had subsequent procedures since then. He still gets a cardiology checkup every year. But can I tell you, he's one of the healthiest children I have ever met in life. Because, yes, the doctors did their work in surgery. But I also serve a great physician who is able to heal what man doesn't understand. The same doctor that came to us and told us he had to have a heart transplant 
came to us when we were sent up to the upper floor to get ready to go home and apologized. When's the last time a doctor apologized to you? He apologized to us and said, I am so sorry, we don't know what happened. But what we saw when he came here led us to that conclusion that he would need a heart transplant. We're sorry that we scared you. And I remember feeling so much faith in that moment because I do know what happened. So you can't tell me that my God doesn't heal when I've watched him heal. You, you can't tell me that he doesn't care about the sickness in my body, that he's not capable of doing exceedingly, abundantly, far more than I could ever ask or imagine. When I have seen him heal, you can't tell me what he can't do. See, I was there when the people who said that they were going to support us in the starting of our church, who had told their congregation that they were our, our parents and were going to support us and they believed in us and they were going to strengthen us. Called our not even a year old church a failure because it wasn't making enough money. Not because people weren't being saved, because people were getting saved. Not because people weren't coming to service, because people were coming to service. Not because, not because uh, good wasn't happening in the community through us, because good was already happening in the community through us, even though our church was not even a year old. They sat us down and said we should close the doors because by eight months in, nine months in, it's not making enough money. But I know God to be a provider. And I've seen him provide. Even when the people who were supposed to support us never supported us. And the only little bit of support they did, they took away from us and kicked us out of a building we got to start in. And there we were, uh, like an orphan, dropped on the, on the doorstep of a stranger. But God provided. And God has sustained us. And God has grown us. And now, a few years later, we've never been healthier. People are getting saved every single week. Every day, service is happening out of this church, people are being fed. A community is being impacted. Lives are being changed. Uh, like, neighborhoods are changing. Oh, and, and by the way, we, we bought our own building. Even though we started as an orphan, we bought our own building. And not only did we buy our own building, uh, we use it for the glory of God and the good of our neighborhood. And people call us about coming into our space using it for for the good of the neighborhood, and we're able to partner together. And what they said had no purpose. What they said wasn't doing good enough. Oh, now, now we own our own house, too. <laughs> and we are able to provide quality, affordable housing to single moms, even though some of the same people who told us our church should close because it wasn't making enough money, when they heard about this idea, had the audacity to tell me that this idea would never work. You can't tell me God's not a provider when I've watched him day after day, year after year, time after time, provide in ways that don't make no sense. When your phone rings like my phone rings and people who ain't even supposed to know you exist want to sit down and meet with you because they believe in the work that you're doing. When, when organizations that don't even, you don't even think they recognize that you're doing anything, call and say, we believe in the work you're doing. We want to support it. We want to come alongside. How can we help you? Because ain't nobody doing this, but you are doing this. Don't tell me God can't provide. I have an experience. I was there when a group of people told me it was pointless to try to build a diverse church in the city of Memphis. They said, you're a good speaker, but you need to understand you're a young white man. Why don't you go to a suburb somewhere? Why don't you go out to Collierville? You'd be successful in Collierville. That's what they told me. Why don't you go up to Millington? Why don't you go out to Arlington? Arlington is booming. You know what that means? It means a bunch of middle class and upper class white people are living out there. That's what it means. It's fine. But I was burdened to create a church in the city that was for the city, that looked like the city. And from before we ever started, we said this would be a hill we die on. So I was on Facebook the other day uh, trying to just answer some stuff for the for the church on the church Facebook and 
somebody had, had put a question out there, just randomly. They said, me and my family need to find a church home that don't judge mixed couples. Now they didn't tag us or anything, but the, the first response to this was from somebody by the name of Jazzy Poo Shakur. I don't know if this is the sister of Tupac. I'm unfamiliar. I don't, I don't know Jazzy Poo. If Jazzy Poo is here, if Jazzy Poo is watching, holler at me. But Jazzy Poo Shakur, in, in, in the response to this, said this. said, believing church on Summer Avenue is extremely diverse. All are welcome, for real. I've been to a few of their events, and they are actually very incredible. They make everyone feel special. Y'all should check them out, for real. <laughs> you can't tell me that we can't show God and show heaven on earth to people in Memphis when I see it with my own eyes. See, because I have an experience, and your faith needs an experience. Yes, it needs examination, and yes, it needs evidence, but it also needs an experience that will fuel you when everything around you is trying to tell you to stop. You need an experience you can go back to that fills you with faith to believe God again and again and again. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Michael, I don't, I don't see stuff like you see stuff. That's because your faith needs one more thing. Your faith needs examination, yes. It needs, it needs that, that evidence. It needs that experience. But it also needs excitement. Ice-T said passion make the world go around, and he right. But there's something about excitement. It changes things. See, and that's the thing about misfits. They're excited, and not everybody knows why. Here's why. Because if you'll get excited about God and the things of God, you'll get excited about what he's done and what he's doing, then you'll dive into your faith with all you've got. And you'll study, and you'll learn, and you'll grow, and you'll reject confirmation bias on the quest to know God, if you'll get excited. See, if you'll get excited... You'll go looking for evidence. You'll want your faith to have the proof that it needs so that you can share it with anyone that needs it. So you won't be someone that simply just takes whatever's handed to you or settles for all that you've got. But you will study and learn and grow and digest and reach out and find so that your faith is strong. So that anyone who would ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have, if they're looking for evidence, baby, you got something to share. And if you get excited... You'll start to see what happens in your life through the, in, the lens of faith. The circumstance and happenstance and luck and coincidence won't get the credit that only God deserves. Your faith needs excitement. Because that becomes the gas that pushes you to finding everything your faith needs. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Can I tell you something today, friend? If you ain't sure of your answer, it's time to sure up your foundation. It's time to sure up your foundation. Some of you need to start examining your faith because you've been handed some stuff and what you were handed is making it hard for you to trust God in this season. Examine it. Some of you need some evidence. Your faith has all been fairy tales and feelings. The problem is when you don't feel it, you don't know where to lean. And now your faith needs some evidence. And it's time to study. It is time to learn. It's time to ask questions. It's time to get in some classes. It's time to have some conversations with some people and get the evidence that your faith needs. Some of you, your faith needs experience. The problem is every time it gets difficult, you bail on God. Every time it gets messy, you stop trusting in God. Every time money gets tight, you stop giving. The problem is you stop giving and maybe you cut off God's hand of blessing to you. What if God wants to show up in your life in some supernatural way? But the problem is every time it gets messy, you bail. What if your mess is what God needs to create your message? What if the, what if the difficulty you are finding yourself in is the very thing that God can use if you'll stay faithful? The very thing that God wants to use if you'll just keep trusting him, even though it makes no sense, misfit. So you can have some evidence, some experience that 
will fuel that excitement on the inside of you to trust God like you never have before. Friend, that's what misfits do. They have an answer built on a firm foundation. Father, I love you. Thank you for today. Father, I pray you help us all to be pushed towards you. Help us today, those of us who doubt, those of us who question, those of us who worry. Help us, Father, to lean on you like we never have before. Help us to trust in you like we never have before. And push us forward in whatever area we need pushed forward in so that we would know you fully, totally, and completely. And we'd always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Jesus, we love you and we pray all this in your name. Amen.